Hello, and welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I'm Kevin Yan, one of the PGY3s here in neurology, and today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Bhaskar Roy from the Division of Neuromuscular Medicine. How are you doing today, Dr. Roy? And thank you for joining me. I'm doing great, Kevin. Uh, thanks for asking me to join this podcast session. I'm really excited uh, to be part of this. Dr. Roy and I will be talking about some quick facts in neuromuscular medicine today. So, in the neuromuscular world, we're really talking about the peripheral nervous system. So, we're going to start with the outermost part of that, which is the muscles. So, Dr. Roy, in terms of things that I think our listeners would really benefit from a review of, we should really start with a lot of the myopathic disorders, and so we'll start with muscular dystrophies. I think that's a very important topic, Kevin, and we'll try to keep it simple and we'll just go over some of the major ones. So as you can understand, we can differentiate myopathies or congenital myopathies depending on the pattern of muscle involvement. Also age of onset can be the other aspect which is important to consider. So we'll try to incorporate both of them in a way. So we'll start with congenital myopathies, which happens at birth and then early childhood, and then we'll go into adulthood. So there are different congenital myopathies you need to consider when it happens at birth, uh, but they are also covered under the pediatric section, so these are important. Few things which are particularly of importance are central core disease and centronuclear myopathy. Often a time, you are going to have biopsy images of these diseases and as you can understand in central core disease you will have a central core which goes longitudinally in the muscle section and in centronuclear myopathy you are going to have a central nucleus in the muscle biopsy. Among them the central core disease is important and it can be caused by ryanodine receptor mutation or RYR1 mutation and this is also particularly important because patients with this mutation are more vulnerable to develop malignant hyperthermia when they are getting anesthesia for different kinds of surgery. So if we move away a bit from myopathies at birth and then we can talk about some of the myopathies which are commonly seen at childhood. Among them the important one is nimalin rod myopathy. Nimalin rod myopathy actually can also be seen in adulthood but the presentation can be different. They will show you a muscle biopsy picture and you can see the nimalin rod structures clearly on it. And apart from nimalin rod myopathy, you also can have centronuclear myopathy and central core myopathy. Both of them can present in childhood. One important group of muscle disorder, which we are not going to discuss in detail, also present in childhood, is metabolic myopathies, particularly glycogen and lipid storage disease. And then rest of the myopathies patients commonly present in their adulthood and they can have different types of presentation. Now once we have moved from the age distribution of myopathy, we can talk about involvement of different muscle groups and that can lead to a different classification of myopathy. The most common one 
is limb girdle distribution of muscle dystrophy often a time they are known or a part of them can be secondary to limb girdle muscular dystrophies limb girdle muscular dystrophies can be autosomal dominant and they can also be autosomal recessive often a time patients with autosomal recessive limb girdle muscular dystrophy or lgmd will have more severe symptoms there are many many types of lgmd and now people are getting frustrated with this complex classification system of lgmd but for the purpose of the exam you need to know at least the most three common type of lgmd1 which are autosomal dominant as i mentioned before 1a is myotelin 1b is lamin ac and 1c is caviolin 3 similarly for limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2 or lgmd2 the top most common genetic mutations for lgmd 2a it is calpain 3 2b is dysferlin and 2c is gamma sarcoglycan this can get a little bit tricky because 2d is caused by alpha sarcoglycan and 2e is caused by beta sarcoglycan so the way you can remember it c for gamma because gamma is the third letter in greek alphabet so 2c is for gamma sarcoglycan lgmd 2i is caused by fkrp and lgmd 2l is caused by fukutin and as you can understand all the lgmds will have proximal muscle involvement and often a time they can be difficult to diagnose them just based on muscle biopsy you need different types of protein staining to understand what might be the underlying pathology now one other aspect of muscular dystrophies which is commonly asked in the exam is the distal myopathies among the distal myopathies similar to lgmd you can have autosomal dominant myopathies and you can have autosomal recessive myopathies among the autosomal dominant myopathies three are commonly asked willander wood and marks berry greeks i don't expect you to always remember all the mutations but more than knowing the mutations it's important to recognize the dominance pattern because it can help you to answer the question and then you have two autosomal recessive one nonaka and miyoshi one important thing to consider the miyoshi pattern of distal weakness is related to dysferlin gene same mutation can cause different type of muscle disease and sometimes it can happen also in congenital ibm where the distal lower extremities can be affected so this is something you need to remember and lgmd 2b is also caused by dysferlin gene I will also mention one other thing we briefly talked about lamin AC which causes LGMD1B the same mutation can also cause Emory Dreyfus syndrome and it can also cause a pat type of Charcot Marie Tooth disease we'll talk about some of those mutations separately later but these are the key genes they often trick you one is lamin AC and the other one is dysferlin one common muscular dystrophy which also presents with proximal or limb girdle pattern of muscle weakness but they also have a distinct pattern which includes ptosis and dysphagia and that is oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy opmd is commonly seen in patients who have french canadian ancestry and it is caused by mutation in papb2 gene we should also briefly recognize the myotonic dystrophies because the myotonic dystrophies there are 
two type myotonic dystrophy type 1 and type 2 and they have very distinct clinical features myotonic dystrophy type 1 the more common and often more recognized one is the myotonic dystrophy which was recognized much earlier and it commonly can affect some of the facial features you can have long face you can have facial weakness and you usually have distal muscle weakness and you have symptoms of muscle myotonia where you have difficulty in relaxing your grip opening doorknobs and you can also have cardiac involvement endocrine involvement and some changes are also noted in brain you can see some white matter changes as well on the other hand myotonic dystrophy type 2 is often known as proximal myotonic dystrophy because the proximal muscles are more affected this is much harder to diagnose the patients can have much more muscle symptoms including myalgia muscle cramps weakness can be subtle and myotonia also can be subtle and I think an important thing for our listeners to remember is that the myotonic dystrophies are both autosomal dominant. Next, I think it would be helpful just to talk about the X-linked muscular dystrophies, especially Duchenne and Becker muscular dystrophy. I think they tend to show up on the test. Duchenne and Becker muscular dystrophies are both X-linked, as just Kevin mentioned, and they are from mutation in the dystrophin gene. There can be so many different type of mutation in the dystrophin gene that it is beyond the scope of going through the major one. But the important thing to recognize here that dystrophin is a very, very big protein. And often a time, there is abnormal expression of dystrophin because it can go out of frame and then you don't have a full dystrophin protein. However, this thing can be addressed by exon skipping. Now we have several medication approved by FDA with this exon skipping technology. What helps to reinstate the reading frame and we have a better functional dystrophin protein. The important thing to recognize for you know, Duchenne or Becker muscular dystrophy is that they can give you a young kid with calf hypertrophy, which is commonly present, and they can have very high CK. Cardiac involvement can be common, and often a time you need to treat them with steroid. Don't start treating them with steroid fairly early because you don't want to stop their normal growth. So you have to wait a bit before you can start steroid. And there are different types of formulation of steroid which can be helpful to mitigate some of the side effects of oral corticosteroid. Deflazacort is one of the steroid which is approved for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it has less side effects than commonly used corticosteroid. However, based on the initial study, kids who are treated with deflazacort more commonly can have cataract, which was more prominent than using corticosteroid. And there is another X-linked muscle dystrophy, which is emery Drafras syndrome. The problem with that, it has several different patterns. And as I might mentioned earlier, the most common mutation is in emerine, but it can have seven types, and it also can be from laminacy mutation. The key things to remember in terms of Emery Dreyfus syndrome is that they can have joint contracture, they have scapuloperoneal pattern of muscle weakness, and cardiac conduction defect is very common.
And speaking of cardiac conduction defects, I think that's a great segue to go to the next category of muscular dystrophies that we should talk about, specifically the mitochondrial ones. There are several different mitochondrial muscular dystrophies that we have to talk about. What about myopathy with ragged red fibers? Very good point. So myopathy with ragged red fibers, a classic histopathological feature for mitochondrial myopathies. If they're asking or showing you a ragged red fiber, it's almost definitely a mitochondrial myopathy, but that may not be always true in real life clinical practice. Mitochondrial myopathies are also so varied, it is sometimes difficult to classify them in an appropriate or easy manner. So we can just talk about the common ones which they have asked in the past. Kiern-Sayer syndrome is one of them. As you probably already know, it is caused by often a time bulk deletion of mitochondrial DNA and not always a specific mutation. It has some classic phenotype of ptosis. You can have ophthalmoparesis. Obviously muscle weakness, often a time it develops before age of 20 and that is also part of the diagnostic criteria I believe. You can have significant muscle weakness and loss of muscle bulk. Cardiac conduction defect is a common problem. Deafness is often a time an associated feature of mitochondrial diseases as well. Mm All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roy, for this excellent comprehensive summary of the muscular dystrophies that we might see. I hope some of our listeners might have been playing along at home and have been filling in the blanks or anticipating the genes or the syndromes that you were going to say before you got there. Now we'll stay in the muscle, but we'll pivot to talking about some of the inflammatory conditions that can affect the muscle. There's a few classic ones that, we'll all, that we should all know, such as polymyositis or dermatomyositis. So Dr. Roy, let's start with polymyositis. So, you know, that is the worst one to start with because many people do not even believe in polymyositis. <laughs> but let's start with dermatomyositis, then we'll talk about inclusion body myositis, sure. and then we'll talk about polymyositis. So dermatomyositis, it's a multi-system disorder where the muscles are affected. You have muscle inflammation, you have skin rash. The most typical skin rash is the heliotropic rash, and you also have the Gotron's patch or Gotron's papule. You can have other types of skin rash, including the shawl pattern, V-sign, uh, those can also be helpful. The important aspect to recognize for dermatomyositis is that some of them can be associated with malignancy, particularly TIF1 gamma and NXP2 are often associated with malignancy, which can develop any time period between two to five years from the diagnosis. As a result, it is very important to screen patients with these particular antibodies for malignancy on a regular basis, at least once a year or six months, depending on other comorbidities and other risk factors. The most common antibody which leads to classic dermatomyositis is anti-MI2, and you should be able to recognize it. And MDA5 antibody-associated dermatomyositis leads to a lot of respiratory symptoms, and that is also another important feature of this antibody. Now, there are several other antibodies which are not particularly specific for dermatomyositis, and we are not going to talk about it. We should talk about the key features of histopathological finding for dermatomyositis. Obviously, you will see muscle infiltration, but the most classic sign of dermatomyositis is perifascicular atrophy. Now, often a time, you may think how you are going to recognize perifascicular atrophy. 
it kind of feels scary but actually the biopsy they are gonna the picture they're gonna provide you you would actually see multiple muscle fibers and fascicles are at the end of the muscle fiber so if you trace it well you should be able to see the fascicles and then you look at the size of the muscle fibers and they are going to be smaller when they are closer to the fascicle and also you can see sometimes depending on the staining you also can see the muscle infiltrate so that is going to tell you there is muscle infiltrate meaning it's a myositis and there is perifascicular atrophy so it's going to be dermatomyositis sometimes they can also show you typical pictures of skin biopsies that can also be helpful now as we started talk about muscle biopsies i'll move to polymyositis before i go into inclusion body myositis remember in polymyositis you are not going to see perifascicular atrophy you are going to see infiltration of muscle fibers predominantly with t lymphocytes and the key feature is invasion of non-necrotic or almost normal looking muscle fibers now how do you recognize a necrotic muscle fiber necrotic muscle fibers often are paler than the normal looking muscle fibers and depending on the stage and everything else you can see pycnotic nuclear clumps that means the nucleus are clumped together and they usually look bluish now we'll move a little bit more into the muscle pathology another condition where you can see muscle infiltration including invasion of non-necrotic muscle fibers but what they are going to do is to add a vacuole to it so it's a rimmed vacuole when you see rimmed vacuoles in muscle biopsy for the purpose of the exam it's almost always inclusion body myositis inclusion body myositis another important thing to remember about it is that it often presents asymmetrically compared to other myositis which are often symmetric and involves your proximal muscles also inclusion body myositis prefers quadriceps and forearm flexors which are much much more affected compared to any other muscles that can be another clue when you see the muscle biopsy or you see such a clinical finding in terms of treatment dr roy what would you do for inclusion body myositis there is no treatment for dermatomyositis you can use high dose intravenous steroid and ivig can also be used for severe dermatomyositis very recently the trial result came out of ivig in dermatomyositis and it showed very promising result and if a patient does not respond to either of them then we can consider plex or we can escalate immunosuppression one type of myositis we also should recognize is immune mediated necrotizing myositis two antibodies are commonly associated with it one is anti srp antibody and the other one is hmgcr antibody the second one the hmgcr antibody has often been linked to use of statin but in some patients this antibody might be present even without any definitive evidence of statin exposure the key thing here to remember immune mediated necrotizing myopathy from anti srp is more common in young women and can be very difficult to treat and patients with immune mediated necrotizing myopathy can have very very high ck Uh, to conclude our discussion on myositis we should also briefly talk about antijo1 which is a common antibody related to anti synthetase syndrome 
and you can have the classic pattern of myositis along with some skin rashes and mechanics hand is a key feature of anti-JO1 mediated antibody and you also can have interstitial lung disease. Two other antibodies sometimes being asked for anti-synthetic syndrome are PL7 and PL12. Apart from that, few medications can cause myositis and it is important to recognize one of them is known as vacuolar myopathy from colchicine that is used for gout is very important to recognize and they have asked these questions in right exam and also chloroquine can cause similar findings with vacuolar myopathy. Among other medications, a chemotherapeutic agent, vincristine, can also lead to vacuolar myopathy. All right, great. That is a good summary of the various myositis that our listeners might be encountering. Just to form, help our listeners with some associations. So for dermatomyositis, it will be associated with a rash. The most classic dermatomyositis will be associated with anti-MI2 antibodies. Dermatomyositis can be associated with malignancy, and you're going to see on muscle biopsy the perifascicular atrophy. Polymyositis, generally you're going to see the infiltration with T lymphocytes. And inclusion body myositis, you'll see a rimmed vacuole on muscle biopsy. This is the one that presents asymmetrically and favors the form flexors and knee extenders. That concludes our discussion about muscles. So we'll move a little more proximally in the nervous system, and we'll get to the neuromuscular junction. The main neuromuscular junction disorders are going to be the myasthenic syndrome, specifically myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. So, as you can understand, we'll try to cover them very briefly without going into a whole lot details about these diseases, but these are autoimmune disease of neuromuscular junction. Myasthenia gravis is a post-synaptic autoimmune disease, and Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome is a pre-synaptic autoimmune disease. It makes difference in terms of diagnostic approach, if it is pre or post synaptic. If you have a post synaptic disease, you need to do a repetitive nerve stimulation study at 2 to 3 hertz. But to diagnose a pre synaptic neuromuscular junction problem, you have to do high frequency repetitive nerve stimulation at 20 to 50 hertz. Dr. Roy, can you tell us a little bit about the diagnostic criteria that we have to meet in terms of the repetitive nerve stimulation, the decrement or the increase in nerve amplitude? So for myasthenia gravis, you have to have at least 10% decrement of response amplitude of response number four compared to response number one. So between first and fourth response, there should be 10% decrement of response amplitude. On the other hand, for a presynaptic neuromuscular junctional problem, we will apply high-frequency repetitive nerve stimulation and we expect to see facilitation, that means the response amplitude will go higher. And we expect about 200% of facilitation, that means the response amplitude should go double from the baseline response amplitude. In presynaptic neuromuscular junctional disorder or Lambert-Eaton, sometimes you also can see post-exercise maximization or post-exercise increment of response amplitude. 
One other thing to mention, the facilitation we see in high frequency repetitive nerve stimulation happens secondary to accumulation of calcium. So that's how the facilitation of response amplitude develops. I think it would be helpful for our listeners also to review the antibodies associated with these disorders. So let's start with myasthenia gravis. So for myasthenia, the most common antibody is against acetylcholine receptor. For the ACHR antibody, there are three types, binding, blocking, and modulating. Modulating, depending on what is the pathophysiology exerted by a particular antibody. Binding is the most common. The next one is mask antibody or against muscle-specific kinase antibody. This antibody is much rarer and present in about 50% of the patients who are negative for ACHR antibody and in a total population maybe anywhere between 10 to 15%. The other antibodies which are now recognized, one is anti-LRP4, the other one is anti-Argene, but both of them are still essentially at research level and not commonly employed in clinical practice. And I believe there's also an anti-striational antibody possibly associated with uh, thymoma. That is true, but the problem with anti-striational antibody is that, you know, it is not very specific, but it can be associated with thymoma in some cases. Right, so for our Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, what antibody is typically associated with that? So Lambert-Eaton is associated with voltage-gated calcium channel antibody, often the PQ-type antibody. And it is also associated with cancer, often a time small cell lung cancer. So in terms of clinical syndrome, for myasthenia gravis, we typically think of the fatigable weakness, for example, in the extremity muscles and in particular the respiratory muscles is what we worry about. We also think about extraocular involvement or bulbar involvement. These can manifest in terms of ptosis, double vision, dysphagia, dysarthria, things like that. They also sometimes can have fatigability with chewing, particularly difficulty in chewing solid food can be, you know, one of the components. Also, Kevin, I'd like to mention that there is often a difference between ACHR antibody-related myasthenia and mask antibody-related myasthenia. Patients with mask-positive myasthenia often a time have more bulbar symptoms They are usually younger and it is more common in young women, whereas patients with myasthenia, as you mentioned, the ocular muscle involvement, bulbar muscle involvement, they usually have proximal muscle weakness, which is a different type of clinical phenotype when you compare to mask myasthenia. Now, in that context, we should also briefly mention the common presentation for Lambert-Eaton syndrome, where you have proximal weakness you have areflexia or hyporeflexia, you can have autonomic symptoms. So those are the key features of Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. One key thing to remember, some patients will give you a history that after they initiate a movement, their strength momentarily gets better. They can tell you they start taking the stairs and fast few stairs are the most difficult, then they get better. If you hear such a story, then it strongly suggests Lambert-Eaton myasthenia. Same thing can happen with reflexes. They might be absent in the beginning 
and after few repetitive movements the reflexes can be present on exam so keep it in your mind which can be helpful to differentiate between different types of myasthenia or autoimmune myasthenia great in terms of management so myasthenia gravis in general will need some kind of immunomodulation in the acute myasthenic crisis treatment we tend to shy away from steroids because they can transiently worsen someone's respiratory status in the acute phase therefore we typically will go with intravenous immunoglobulin therapy or with plasmapheresis and the long term they'll need some kind of immunomodulation whether that's corticosteroid therapy or a steroid sparing agent such as azathioprine there are also some newer treatments for myasthenia that have come out in the last decade or so. So can you tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Roy? I think that's going to be very important, particularly you should know about the complement inhibitors. Complement inhibitors can be beneficial in myasthenia. There are three clinical trials which have shown excellent result. Among the complement inhibitors, we have biologics such as antibody against C5B or the eculizumab. There is a longer-acting version, rafalizumab. Both of them showed benefits in myasthenic patients in clinical trial. The other type of complement inhibitors which showed benefit is a peptide, xylucaplan, which also can be helpful, which is given subcutaneously. Apart from the complement inhibitor, there are studies which showed benefit of FCRN inhibitor or the inhibitors of neonatal FC receptor has also shown benefit in treating patients with myasthenia. I think this mechanism can be important. So these neonatal FC receptors, they help in recycling immunoglobulin. The FCRN inhibitors prevent this recycling and leads to depletion of immunoglobulin as a result, antibodies are depleted and the patients feel better. I think that's a good summary of the newer myasthenia gravis agents, and they've been out for a few years now, so right about now is when we would expect to start to see them be introduced into our question banks. What about treatment for Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome? So for Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, you can use immunotherapies such as IVIG and others, but depending on the severity. The specific treatment for Lambert-Eaton is 3,4-diaminopyrimidine. That is available and can be beneficial in treating patients with Lambert-Eaton myasthenic disease. However, you have to remember Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome can be part of a perineoplastic process, and in that case, we also have to address the underlying cancer. In the past, what I've seen from these questions is they want you to treat the cancer first and then remember the pharmacologics that Dr. Roy had mentioned in terms of treating symptoms. And before we leave the neuromuscular junction, we should touch on the congenital myasthenic syndromes. So I think for congenital myasthenic syndrome, we will just talk about very specific ones which have clinical signs that are helpful to differentiate them from the others. For an example, Call-Q genetic mutation-related congenital myasthenic syndrome can have extraocular motion involvement and they can have slow or absent pupillary response. And for agreen-related congenital myasthenic syndrome, you can have limb girdle pattern of weakness and you also can have foot drop. However, foot drop is not unique to agreen-related myasthenic syndrome. You can have foot drop 
often a time along with wrist or finger drop in congenital myasthenic syndrome with tubular aggregates which can be related to GFPT1, DPAGT1, ALG2 and ALG14 mutations. I think it is important to recognize that slow or absent pupillary response that can happen from colchium mutation and most of the congenital myasthenic syndrome are autosomal recessive except slow channel myasthenic syndrome which is related to an underlying ACHR subunit mutation which is autosomal dominant and patients with slow channel myasthenic syndrome can have weak forearm extensions and neck extensor weakness along with respiratory weakness. The other thing to recognize, in many of the congenital myasthenic syndrome, you should avoid acetylcholine esterase inhibitor or pyridostegmine. Particularly important for COL-Q-related mutation, slow-channel congenital myasthenic syndrome, and DOC7-related mutation. Albuterol can be beneficial for some of the congenital myasthenic syndrome, particularly for COL-Q-related mutation and DOC7 mutation. So that concludes our discussion of neuromuscular junction disorders. So now we'll move to the peripheral nerve. Peripheral neuropathy, I think, is something that every neurologist has a lot of experience going over. So I'll give everyone a quick overview of what we typically think about in peripheral neuropathy. We just have to make sure that there's not a reversible cause and then it's really about symptom management. Common reversible causes that we see include vitamin or mineral deficiencies such as B1 or B12 deficiency. Another metabolic cause, probably the most common, is hyperglycemia, though unfortunately that is oftentimes not reversible. And we usually send a serum protein electrophoresis or immunofixation electrophoresis as part of a gammopathy screen. I did, however, want to focus our discussion on peripheral neuropathy on some of the rarer conditions that are more likely to show up on the right exam. I think it may be helpful to start with something like a hereditary condition. So maybe we can focus on a syndrome, for example, if a young person commonly crosses their arms or legs and finds that they're numb. Definitely. So, you know, what Kevin is pointing towards, all of you probably already know, is hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsy are commonly known as HNPP. The cause of HNPP is actually deletion of uh, PMP22. When I say deletion of PMP22, always remember duplication of PMP22 also causes a disease. So don't get confused. Deletion of PMP22 means hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsy. They sometimes also ask you about the teased fiber findings of HNPP and you can see sausage type nerve fibers from abnormal myelination. And I think they might also give us a nerve conduction study and it would show conduction block at various locations. Exactly. There are also, apart from HNPP, some other congenital neuropathy which you should be aware of, particularly charcot marie tooth disease. There are different variants of CMT. CMT type 1 is the demyelinating one and often a time they can be autosomal dominant and CMT type 2 is more axonal variant of CMT. Some of these mutations you should be aware of, particularly CMT1A which is caused by duplication 
PMP22. So remember, CMT1A is a bad disease. It needs more of PMP22. It just as a mnemonic. It's not for real life purpose. So that's why you have duplication of PMP22 in CMT1A and deletion of PMP22 in HNPP. CMT1B is caused by MPG mutation and those are very important to recognize. They also often ask about CMT1X which is X-linked dominant disease and related to a junctional protein Connexin 32. CMT type 2 as I mentioned earlier are more axonal can be from a point mutation in different genes. CMT type 2B is particularly important because it can be caused by lamin AC mutation. You may remember we talked about it earlier. It can lead to limb girdle muscular dystrophy and also can be involved in certain type of MED trifer syndrome. CMT1 and 2 are the most important one. There are also CMT3 and 4. CMT4 is particularly autosomal recessive which you need to recognize and some of them can present with HMSN or hereditary motor sensory neuropathy. We will talk more about brachial plexus later but one important genetic mutation is SEPT9 mutation ACPT1 which leads to congenital neuralgic amyotrophy or congenital brachial plexopathy. So next we'll move on and talk about some of the inflammatory conditions that can affect the peripheral nerves. The most common one that we'll see is probably Guillain-Barre syndrome and its multiple variants. So maybe we'll start with the most common one, AIDP, or Acute Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyradiculoneuropathy. I think the name of the condition really tells us most of what we need to know. So Dr. Roy, what would you like to say about that? Another favorite topic and you obviously should know the common clinical features of AIDP and you should also know the different variants of mm -hmm. AIDP. When I talk about variants, sometimes they ask about different gangliosides that is involved in GBS, which is the umbrella term for acute autoimmune neuropathies. And depending on the underlying gangliosite, you can have different clinical phenotypes. One important one to always recognize is GQ1B, which is commonly associated with Miller-Fisher syndrome. And you also can have extraocular involvement. And the classic triad for the exam is probably going to be ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia for Miller-Fisher. And then the other important one to recognize would be the brachiopharyngeocervical variant, which is often a time caused by GT1A gangliocyte, acute motor axonal neuropathy, which can be related to GD1A. Rarely you also can see it with GN1 anti-gangliocyte antibodies. One thing which I believe is important is how we name these gangliocyte antibodies. It depends on the number of N-acetyl neuraminic acid. So if it is ones, then it is mono, so it becomes GM. If they have two N-acetyl neuraminic acid, it becomes di, so GD1A, same way it becomes GT for tri, 
and if it has four N-acetyl nulaminic acid, it becomes GQ1B. Can you also talk about the only really central nervous system condition that these antibodies can cause, the bigger staphs? Yeah, the bigger stuff one is often a time caused by GQ1B. It's also called brainstem encephalitis. Next, we had talked about acute motor axonal neuropathy as possibly being associated with GM1 and GD1A antibodies. There's also an infection that can result in acute motor axonal neuropathy, which I believe is on the med student level as well. So Campylobacter jejuni is the common infection. Like there is often a history of diarrhea, predisposing diarrhea before you develop GBS. And specifically bloody diarrhea. And if you have a lot of patients with Campylobacter jejuni antibody actually develop acute motor axonal variant of GBS and not the classic AIDP pattern. And they also can have poorer prognosis based on some criteria. So in terms of diagnosis, we typically would go for a lumbar puncture to look for albuminocytologic dissociation, which is a big word that just means you have elevated protein but normal cells. What would you expect to see if you were to take these patients for EMG? So I think what you mean, Kevin, is NAP conduction studies, which can be very helpful in GBS. There are different characteristic patterns of acute demyelination. Often a time, the first sign you would see is prolonged F-waves, and then you also can see temporal dispersion. That essentially means the morphology of the motor response amplitude is going to become wider when you stimulate more proximally. It is a little bit harder to explain why it happens over a podcast, but essentially because some of the fibers are more demyelinated than others, so the speed of nerve conduction varies between fibers, leading to this temporal dispersion. The other classic pattern you can see in GBS is conduction block, where you can see significant reduction of motor amplitude with proximal stimulation. And it also stems from significant demyelination, slowing the nerve fiber. We also should mention that you can obviously see other common features of demyelination, including prolonged distal latencies and slowing of conduction velocities. Some patients who have Miller-Fisher syndrome or cranial nerve involvement Sometimes you can see abnormal blink reflex, which can be a very early sign of abnormal nerve conduction studies in a demyelinating disease. And in terms of Guillain-Barre syndrome treatment, it is an autoimmune process, so we would also give the intravenous immunoglobulin or plasmapheresis therapy. I think in terms of logistics, we usually start with intravenous immunoglobulin just because it's logistically easier, but in terms of the exam purposes, they are considered equivalent. If you look into the guideline, you'd see that if someone is actually coming with very severe motor weakness, becoming non-ambulatory very quickly, there is recommendation that plasmapheresis might be better, but often a time, as you mentioned earlier, depending on the logistic and because we can initiate IVIG much faster, often a time we treat these patients with IVIG fast before going for plasmapheresis. There is no definitive benefit of using high-dose intravenous in Guillain-Barre syndrome. The previous trial did not show that additional high-dose steroid is beneficial in GBS. 
And so that's a good summary of the inflammatory disorders, I think. We should also just touch on some of the motor neuron diseases. So starting off with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, the most common one, this is the one that classically presents with progressive painless weakness over the course of months to years, and will have to have mixed upper and lower motor neuron signs and active and chronic denervation in at least three areas of the body on electromyography. In terms of genetics for ALS, there's a few genes that have been implicated. Zinc superoxide dismutase, SOD1, is probably the most famous one, Dr. Roy. What are some of the others that you think we should, be, we should know? So. SOD1 mutation is more well recognized, but I think all of you should also be familiar with C9 ODIF mutation, which is the most common in Northern America. And often a time, they also can have frontotemporal dementia associated with ALS, and that is something important to recognize. Most of the Familial ALS patients often carry C9 ODIF mutation, and 10% of the sporadic ALS may also have this mutation. Other motor neuron disease patterns that should be recognized include the posterior lateral sclerosis, which can be asymmetric and can be primarily upper motor neuron signs. Is that right, Dr. Roy? That is correct. One key thing to recognize for posterior lateral sclerosis or PLS is that you cannot make a diagnosis of PLS unless patients have symptoms for four years or more. So I think that ALS and PLS are probably the main ones to remember. I think it would also be helpful to talk about some of the other um, neuropathies. So actually, you know, this is the right place to talk about uh, multifocal motor neuropathy because Often a time it is recognized as a cousin of ALS because it can mimic ALS in some ways of clinical presentation and you can have significant muscle atrophy, often a time distal muscles, hand muscles, and you can have conduction block. But not all the patients with multifocal motor neuropathy will have conduction block. And some patients with multifocal motor neuropathy can actually have the GM1 antibody but probably anywhere between 50 to 60% of the patients, depending on which literature you are looking at. And they may not respond completely, but you can use IVIG and some of the hand function may get better. Mm-hmm. What about mononeuritis multiplex? Mononeuritis multiplex is a very important pattern to recognize. can be related to vasculitis. It's called mononeuritis multiplex, meaning multiple nerves are involved. One interesting finding is that you can have dissociation of the motor and sensory involvement in some cases. For an example, you may see involvement of median sensory responses and medial motor responses is relatively spared, but the ulnar motor is more involved and ulnar sensory may or may not be spared. So that kind of pattern, if it is painful, asymmetric should raise the suspicion of mononeuritis multiplex and the most common cause of mononeuritis multiplex is considered to be diabetes but at the same time it can be autoimmune particularly you have to be very concerned regarding underlying vasculitis. So lastly I wanted to touch upon anatomy for neuromuscular medicine. I think neuroanatomy and knowing the anatomy really well is 
going to be really important to be able to localize a condition based on the syndrome that they give you in the question stem. Ideally, we would go over the anatomy of the brachial plexus and the lumbosacral plexus in detail, but I think for the sake of our listeners, it's rather difficult to do that in an audio podcast format. Something that we always get told to do in my residency program is, at the beginning of these certification exams, we should just draw out the brachial plexus on the little notes sheet that we get so that we can use it throughout the test as a reference. Having done that enough times, you know, we can start doing that from memory. So, in lieu of actually describing the exact course of the brachial plexus, because I think we'll leave that as an exercise to our listeners, we just wanted to talk about a few key parts of the brachial plexus that we think are important to not forget and to keep in mind when you take the test. I think, as you mentioned, Kevin, we'll skip the details of the anatomy. But often a time in right exam, they love asking about which nerve just comes out before brachial plexus from the posterior MI of C567, that is the long thoracic nerve which supplies serratus anterior muscle, also termed as climbing muscle. And then there is another nerve, dorsal scapular nerve, which just comes out of C5 nerve root, supplying the rhomboid muscle. So that can be helpful when you are trying to differentiate in the pattern of brachial plexus involvement. And for our listeners, can you remind them what the serratus anterior and the rhomboid muscles do? Both of these muscles can be involved in stabilization of scapula, particularly serratus anterior, and you can see scapular winging if you have serratus anterior palsy. We'll not go into the details of anatomy, but one thing to recognize from the posterior cord, you get a branch, thoracodorsal nerve, which supplies your latissimus dorsi, and you also get the upper and lower subscapular nerves from the same posterior cord. And eventually it branches out into axillary and radial nerve. It is important to remember median nerve gets supplies essentially from all the level because it is formed with the union of both lateral and medial cord. So it has components of both lateral and medial cord. And ulnar nerve is a continuation of the medial cord. Two nerves are favorite in exam and often a time helpful in clinical practice is the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve and the lateral antibacterial cutaneous nerve. Doing nerve conduction studies of this nerve is often considered as mandatory when you are doing a nerve conduction study to evaluate brachial plexus injury. It can be confusing but remember the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve supplies the medial aspect of your forearm which is a dermatomal pattern for CA. It has to come from lower cord because the lower cord is developed from C8 and T1. So medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve comes off lower cord and carries the fibers from C8 nerve root. On the other hand, the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is on the distribution of C6 dermatomal pattern. So that way you can differentiate between these sensory supplies. One key thing about the brachial plexus, because it can be very confusing, the dermatomal pattern is essentially always maintained. So what I mean, if you remember the dermatomal pattern, 
the lateral aspect of your arm mostly c5 the lateral aspect of your forearm up to digit 2 c6 digit 3 mostly c7 digit 4 5 up to your elbow the medial aspect is mostly c8 and the medial aspect of your arm is t1 so if you remember that dermatomal pattern it actually can help you to make a guess from which part of brachial plexus you will get the supply for that particular dermatomal aspect and that can be very helpful in many questions i think the most common questions that they're going to ask about anatomy really just will be listing several muscle actions that are going to be weak and localizing it that way which if you know the muscles and you know the nerves innervating them and you can draw out the brachial plexus i think our listeners will be able to solve those without a problem but like i said earlier we're just not going to cover that here because it's impractical to do so over a podcast format and before we leave the brachial plexus i'll just mention parsonage turner syndrome or acute brachial plexitis and it's just important to recognize that it's a painful inflammatory process involving the entire brachial plexus. I think in this regard, we should also briefly talk about thoracic outlet syndrome. Often a time, it can present with a classic presentation of median motor involvement and ulnar sensory involvement. The thoracic outlet syndrome, or we should better term it as true neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, is actually caused by a fibrous band that runs from a rudimentary cervical rib to the first thoracic rib. Technically, it can affect both C8 and T1, but it predominantly affects the T1 fibers. So that's why you see more median motor involvement with relative sparing of hypothenar muscles, and they can also have some sensory symptoms in the ulnar distribution. So I think that'll do it for our discussion of the brachial plexus today, and we'll move on to the lumbosacral plexus, which is just as important but tends to get a little less fanfare than the brachial plexus. Again, we're not going to get into the granular details about the anatomy of the lumbosacral plexus just because it's impractical to do so in a podcast setting. One of the tidbits we'll just leave you with is a discussion about perineal neuropathy versus L5 radiculopathy, because I think that's something that we've seen questions on a fair amount of the past. So obviously, as you can understand, clinically there is going to be some difference because perineal neuropathy should only lead to dorsiflexion weakness along with inversion weakness, and inversion should be spared, whereas in L5 radiculopathy, you can have inversion involved too. I think the important question that they often ask, tibialis anterior is the only muscle in the lower extremities which is supplied by L4 nerve root because rest of the muscles below knee are supplied by L5 S1 mostly. And the other important question to recognize is when you are trying to do EMG, like going back to your previous point, foot drop and perineal neuropathy, we should always check the short head of bicep femoris because that is the only muscle which is supplied by perineal nerve or perineal branch of sciatic nerve above me. So if you have involvement of short head of bicep femoris, then it is more likely to be a sciatic nerve problem than a perineal nerve problem. 
That's an excellent point, Dr. Roy. Definitely something to know. I'll also add a few more classic questions. One is femoral nerve. Femoral nerve comes from the posterior branch of L23, uh, the lumbar plexus essentially, and it supplies the quadriceps. But an important thing to distinguish, where is the injury? So if you are doing an EMG and you see the iliopsoas muscle is involved, then the femoral nerve injury is in the abdomen or before the inguinal ligament. Whereas if the iliopsoas is spared, then the injury is likely to be beyond inguinal ligament. That is one point which is very important to remember. The other question they have asked in the past is the nerve root for sural nerve, which is essentially S1 nerve root. And you also need to remember saphenous nerve is the terminal sensory branch of femoral nerve. And sural nerve has a component of both tibial and also part of peroneal nerve that you also should remember. Well, neuromuscular medicine is too big and complicated to be easily coverable in a short quick facts podcast episode like this, but we hope that this episode has really helped remind you and jog your memory about some of the more esoteric conditions that you can see in neuromuscular medicine. I wanted to really thank Dr. Basker Roy for joining me today. Thank you very much, Dr. Roy. My pleasure, Kevin. It was really entertaining, and I hope you will score really, really high in the neuromuscular section at least. All right. Thank you very much and take care, everyone.